So um, the passage um, that I've chosen for um, this morning is one verse from Proverbs. Proverbs uh, chapter 4, verse 23. And um, I think, yeah, let me read. I'll read all of that there. I'll read verses 20 through 27. And then we're going to focus our attention on verse 23. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So the question um, that I want to ask this afternoon is this. What is it that determines all of your outward behavior? In terms of the words that you speak, the actions that you take, the responses that you make to all of the different circumstances and situations in which you find yourself throughout your life. Uh, how is it that we explain um, the fact that in precisely the same difficult situation, one person will respond with incredible courage and grace and another person will completely fall apart? Or how do we explain the fact that um, one person when hearing uh, a, a word of criticism will take that as an opportunity for self-improvement, and another person hearing that exact same word of criticism will be devastated and reduced to tears. How do we explain the fact that some people find keeping the commandments of God to be a sheer delight, while others find it to be sheer drudgery? Why do we find it difficult to attend church regularly or to pray consistently? Why are we afraid? to let our friends know that we're followers of Jesus? Why do we uh, continue to spend money that we know we really don't have in order to buy things we know we really don't need with the result that we go further and further into debt, even though we know somewhere in the back of our minds that it's going to work out bad for us in the future? Why do we choose to be in relationships, romantic relationships with people that we know really aren't good for us and really aren't helping us to be the best version of ourselves. Why do we procrastinate in our work? Why do we put off turning in our papers and, and preparing for exams? The answer to all of these questions and a thousand others like them, the biblical answer is, in a word, the heart. It is the inward condition of your heart that will ultimately determine all of your outward behavior. That's actually the main thing I want to say to you this afternoon. So let me just say that one more time. It is the inward condition of your heart that will ultimately determine all of your outward behavior in terms of the words you speak, the actions that you choose, and the responses you make in all the situations that you find yourself in. Get to the heart and you will find the explanation for what you and everyone else around you is doing. And this biblical psychology, we might call it, this biblical psychology of the relationship between the inward condition of our hearts and all of our outward behavior 
that biblical psychology is nowhere more succinctly expressed than here in this proverb in chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, I want you to notice this proverb has two parts, right? There's a command that we are given, something for us to do, right? Keep your heart with all vigilance. And then there's a rationale or a reason that is given in support of that command. For from it flow the springs of life. So that's what I want us to look at this afternoon. I want us to look briefly at the command. Then I want to look briefly at the rationale. Then I'll have a few closing um, comments on some very practical considerations if we're to put this passage of scripture into practice. So first of all, let's look at the command that we are given here. Uh, keep your heart. Now, what exactly does the Bible mean when it talks about the heart? I, th I think it's pretty obvious that this is not advice from an ancient cardiologist, right? The, uh, the, the author of the Proverbs is not talking about uh, the care of the physical organ that pumps blood throughout our bodies, as important as that is. But when the Bible is talking about the heart, it's talking about what we might call spiritual cardiology, right? The, the Bible, when it uses that word heart, it's, it's doing so, it's using the word heart and the physical organ that pumps blood as a metaphor or a symbol for something else, something very important. Now, it's interesting, um, and this is where sometimes I think we get a little confused, because in our modern world, we also use the heart as a, as a metaphor or a symbol of something else. Usually, we tend to, when we use the heart in that way, we tend to be thinking about our emotional life, right? And, and especially, let's be honest, especially romantic feelings. Uh, Valentine's Day is rapidly approaching. And we are about to be inundated with messages everywhere that refer to the heart as a way of talking about our romantic feelings. And uh, we're going to see images of hearts everywhere, right, as a symbol of Valentine's Day and those romantic feelings. But in the ancient world, and in the Bible in particular, the heart is a metaphor for uh, much more than our emotional life, okay? And that's the, the key thing that you have to keep in mind when you're reading the Bible and you come across the word heart being used as a metaphor. It's not just talking about our feelings, it's talking about the entire inner life of a person. And in fact, in the Bible, when the word heart is used, it, it's especially talking about our thinking, surprisingly, because we tend to associate that with the mind, which the Bible does also. But the Bible also has in view our thinking when it talks about the heart, the, um, how we interpret the world in which we find ourselves, how we make sense of what's happening all around us so that we know who we are and, and how we're supposed to live. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about our desires, what do I long for? What do I love? And, and do I love this more than I love that? And what is it that I long for and love above all else? You see, those are all questions of the heart. 
And so when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about this, our, our inner life in terms of our thoughts and our desires. And so once we understand that that's what the word heart means when it's being used as a metaphor in Scripture, we can then ask the question, okay, well, what does the command mean then when it says to keep your heart? And in a word, what it means is it means to pay very careful attention to what's going on in your inner life, right? What's going on in terms of your thinking and your desires. Now, as it turns out, um, the English, just as in English, the, the Hebrew word that's translated keep can, can mean either to protect or to restrain. All right, so the word can mean to protect in the sense of keep watch, pay careful attention as if like you're watching over a camp or a city, right? You're standing guard to make sure that an enemy doesn't come in and do great harm to you and your people. So it can mean to protect in that keep, you can keep watch or protect in that sense. But the word keep can also mean to restrain in the sense of keep watch over a prisoner, Right? Pay careful attention and take certain measures to make sure that he doesn't escape and get out. And actually, both of those meanings of the English and the Hebrew word to keep are part of what's involved in keeping your heart. So on the one hand, when it says to keep your heart, it means you're to protect your heart. You're to pay very close attention to your thought life and to your desires and to make sure that, that unbiblical thinking and evil desires that are all around us don't enter into your heart and take root there and begin to grow and have a profound influence on you. So to keep your heart means to protect your heart in that sense. But keeping your heart also means to restrain your heart. It means to restrain your own heart in the sense of uh, doing what you can to ensure that the unbiblical thinking and the evil desires that already dwell in your heart don't get out, right? That, that taking whatever measures we can to make sure that they don't grow and, and instead that we put them to death so that they don't, they don't break out and uh, as they inevitably, inevitably will, if we don't keep the heart, have an influence on our outward behavior, how we're speaking and how we're acting and how we're living in the world. So this is what's involved when the Bible tells us to keep your heart. It means that you're to pay very close attention to your inner life, to, to protect and to restrain your heart, to be very careful about your thinking and your desires, right? Okay, and then notice, I, I want you to notice then that there's a qualification that's added to this command, right? It doesn't just say keep your heart. It says keep your heart with all vigilance. It's interesting that the Hebrew here literally says, more than all keeping, keep your heart. And the clear implication is that there is nothing more important for you to pay attention to than the inward condition of your heart. Right? And I just want us to think for a moment about how often, even as followers of Jesus, we ignore that absolutely vital principle of the Christian life to our own detriment. Because the truth of the matter is that 
we're most often paying attention not to our hearts, not to our inward life, but to our outward behavior, right? We're most often focused on what we're saying and what we're doing and how we're responding, which is important, but we're not nearly as focused on the heart, on how we're thinking or what our desires are in all the different situations in which we find ourselves. Let's just, uh, I mean, consider the way in which we approach parenting. Actually, are any of you, do any of you have kids? Probably not. Okay, consider the way in which your parents <laughs> approached parenting, right? The way we approach parenting in general is we tell our kids what? We say, oh, be careful about what you say, or watch what you do, or you should talk this way, or you should act this way. We're very focused on their outward behavior, right? But how often do we ask our children about the thinking of their hearts, how they're making sense of what's going on and understanding it. How often do we inquire about what it is that they really want, what it is that they were desiring in some situation, you see? Do we teach our children for themselves to think about what's going on inwardly in the heart? And what this verse is saying to us, it's saying that as important as our outward behavior is, our words and our actions, and, and let me, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. Let me be clear. Our outward behavior is very important to God, right? But as important as it is, he's saying there's something that's even more important. And that is that you pay very close attention to your heart, to your thought life, to your loves, what you desire, what you long for most life. Now, why would it be so important? Why would God say, above all keeping, keep your heart? Above everything else, pay close attention to that. Well, that brings us to the rationale that we're given for this command in verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. There's the reason. Okay. Now, again, the Hebrew of this verse, if we were to translate it very literally, it says, more than all keeping, keep your heart, for from it, that is from the heart, life goes out. All right? That's what it literally says in Hebrew. Keep your heart above everything else, because from it, life goes out. And this metaphor of a spring, though, a, a water spring, is a, a very... A helpful way to translate the gist of what this verse is saying. When I was um, a boy many, many years ago, <laughs> uh, my father and I um, enjoyed canoeing on the rivers of Indiana all around where I grew up. And every now and then, um, some other men that my, my dad knew and their sons would go with us and we would take these canoe trips to other states, and we would canoe on rivers and other places, and it was a wonderfully fun thing to do. And one time, we took a trip to the state of Missouri, and we canoed on a river called the Current River. And as soon as we were, got into this river and we're canoeing, I was just struck by the fact that the water in this river was unlike any river that I had ever been on in Indiana. Okay, now the soil in the state of Indiana is very soft. It's great for farming, right? <laughs> but because it's so soft, all the rivers in Indiana, the water bed, the bed of the rivers are very soft. The, the rivers are all very muddy and dark, and you can't see through them. 
But this river in Missouri was cool and crystal clear. I mean, you could see like eight feet straight down to the bottom of the river. It was that clear. It was beautiful. And, and, and we were just amazed at this, the water in this river. But then every now and then, as you would canoe along, you'd see a little stream bubbling down into the river, right? And if you, if you got out of your canoe and you hiked just a little bit up along that stream, you would inevitably come to a large pool with a spring of water churning out water in the middle of it, right? The quality of the water in the river was determined by the spring, which was its source. And that's what the proverb is saying. Your life, in terms of your outward behavior, in terms of the way you speak, the way you act as a person, is ultimately determined not by your circumstances, but by the inward condition of your heart. Jesus um, picks up on this teaching in the Proverbs, and uh, he has a different metaphor, though, to make the same point. Find it in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. Nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? And our actions flow. It's the same principle. In Proverbs, the point is that all of our outward behavior flows from the inward condition of our heart like, like water from a spring. And Jesus is saying all of our outward behavior is like fruit that, on a tree. And the condition of the fruit is determined by the nature of the tree itself, which is the heart, right? You don't find figs on thorn bushes because thorn bushes produce thorns. And in the same way, Jesus is saying the condition of our inner life will inevitably think that's key to understand too. There's no mystery about why thorn bushes produce thorns and fig trees produce figs, right? They produce what's consistent with their nature. In the same way Jesus is saying, we can focus all you want on your outward behavior, but until your heart changes, <laughs> your outward behavior will always reflect the real condition of your heart, your thought life, and your desires, right? So if you want your behavior to change, what needs to change is not so much our circumstances, but the condition of our hearts. Now, I have one more illustration just to make that last point. Um, imagine that um, uh, I and a bunch of other people are invited by a friend to his home. And when we arrive there, we discover that he has remodeled his house and and in his living room, he has decided to put down this beautiful white carpet. Okay, and then we get there, and on the table, there's a big pitcher of water, and there's a little sign with cups that says, help yourself to some water, right? But I decide I don't want water. So I take my cup, and I go into his kitchen, and I find a bottle of wine, and I put some wine in my cup. And so now I'm walking around at the party, and I'm talking with people, and I've got my cup of wine, right? And someone accidentally bumps into my shoulder, and I, I spill the cup, and now there's this 
awful dark wine stain on his beautiful white carpet, right? And my friend comes over, you know, trying to restrain his frustration and his dismay, and he says, why is there wine on my carpet, my beautiful white carpet? How would you answer that question? I think most of us would be tempted to say, because this guy bumped into me. That's why there's wine on the carpet. But of course, the truer and deeper answer is, there's wine on the carpet because I put wine in the cup. If I had listened to my host and put water in the cup, there'd be water on the carpet right now. And in the same way, we are not often able to control the circumstances of our life. We're not able to control how people treat us. We're not often able to control the things that happen to us. Any more than at that party, I could control somebody bumping into me, right? But God has given us ability to have some control over what we put in our cup, what we put in our hearts, right? And what the proverb is saying is it says, pay close attention to the condition of your heart, to your thought life, and to your desires. Because that will, if you do so and your inner life is right, in every situation, you will find more and more that your outer life will be what it should be as well. The condition, the inward condition of your heart will ultimately determine your outward behavior, not your circumstances. That's why two people in exactly the same circumstance can respond in incredibly different ways because what's going on in their heart is totally different. Right? Okay. Two very practical considerations following on this, and then I'll pray, and we'll be done. The first is this. You cannot keep your heart until God first renews your heart. Okay? So the Bible actually um, does not have an especially high view of the human heart apart from the work of God's grace. That's an understatement. Um, so, for example, in Genesis chapter 6, in the story of Noah's flood, it begins with this statement uh, in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts, that's interesting, notice, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You remember a little bit later in the Old Testament, the story of King David, Israel's greatest king. He uses his power as king to force Bathsheba into an adulterous relationship. Then he uses his power as king to coerce one of his generals into a conspiracy to have her husband, Uriah, murdered. And when David is finally confronted and challenged by his great wickedness by the prophet Nathan, and he's led to repentance, in Psalm 51, do you remember what David prays? He doesn't simply pray, Lord, uh, keep me from murdering and committing adultery again, which would have been appropriate prayer. But he goes deeper, and he says what? Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Because David understood that the real source of his wicked behavior was the evil that was in his heart and that that's where the problem had to be addressed. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says of the uh, unbelieving world, he says in verses 21 22, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice again the connection between the heart and thinking there. And then in Ephesians 4.18, Paul says again that the unbelieving world is darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, right? And in fact, this was the great problem in the whole Old Testament story of Israel. God would give his people, he lovingly would call them out of their slavery. He called them into relationship with himself. He said, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'm going to give you this beautiful land. I'm going to bless you. And he gave them his commands. He said, if you will keep my commands, what will be the result? Abundant life, right? That's what God wants. But what happens again and again in the story of Israel, the Israelites fall into idolatry. They fall into sexual immorality. They fall into great injustice, right? And the prophets cry out, circumcise your hearts and not just your flesh. In other words, they have the outward sign of the relationship with God, but their hearts aren't right. And this goes on so much. And then finally, through the prophet Ezekiel, God says this in chapter 36, verse 26. He says that, that there's a day coming when God in his mercy and grace says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right. And, and this promise of God that he's going to deal with the real problem by giving his people a new heart is, of course, what Jesus is talking about in the Gospel of John when he talks about being born again or in, in John chapter seven, where um, Jesus says, um, sorry, should have marked this one, <laughs> where Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And then he rises from the dead. And you remember what happens? He pours out the Holy Spirit, right? He makes the spirit available so that all who believe in him, who call him Savior and Lord, will not only be forgiven of their sins because of his death on the cross, but will have that Holy Spirit who begins a process of renewing us from the inside out. He, he renews our hearts. He gives us a new heart so that more and more our heart in terms of our thinking and our desires becomes like Jesus' heart. And if our inward life is like Jesus' inward life, it is inevitable that our outward life will be like his as well. As our hearts are renewed, what will flow out of them is new words and new actions and new responses that are Christ-like and are a blessing to others and bring glory to God. All right? And that work of renewal that the Spirit is doing, where he's changing us from the inside out, it begins at our conversion when we first hear the gospel message and through that word about Jesus, the spirit enlightens our minds so that we begin to see and think correctly. And he, he renews our will so that we begin to want the things that God wants. And we see for the first time, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. God's amazingly merciful and loving. I, I should believe on Jesus. And so we do. And then that process of renewal continues 
lives. He renews us more and more throughout our lives until the Bible says after we're dead and we rise from the dead and even our physical bodies are renewed into the likeness of Christ's resurrected body. And what the Proverbs is saying when it says keep your heart is it says that God has given us, as we're going to see in just a second, he's given us a role in that process. But the process can't even get going until there's that initial work of renewal when we place our faith in Jesus. So the bottom line is there's no keeping of the heart. There's no being renewed into the likeness of Christ if you're not yet a believer in Jesus. If you've not yet placed your faith in him, asked him to forgive you for your sins and asked you to help to live in the way that shows that you're his disciple in a way that reflects his character and likeness. So that that's the first point is that we can't keep the heart. That's the first practical implication. We can't keep the heart until God's renewed the heart. Then the second one, and I'll close with this, is that only God by the, his spirit can renew the heart. And yet keeping the heart is something you must do. There's a little bit of a mystery here, right? I mean, this is a command that God gives us. He tells us, keep your heart, guard it, protect it, make sure it's what it's supposed to be. But then we're told everywhere else in the Bible that our heart is desperately sick and and we can't change it and only God's spirit can change it. So what gives here? I mean, if only God's spirit can change our heart and renew it more and more so it becomes like Jesus' heart and then our behavior becomes like Jesus' behavior. If only the spirit can do that, what do we do? Just sit back and, you know, wait for the lightning strike of the Spirit to make us like Jesus? No, the, the Bible teaches that God has given you a role in that process. He, he calls upon you to open your life up to the Spirit's work. He calls upon you to keep your heart, to pay attention to it carefully, and to do those things that allow the Spirit to do His work within you. So the illustration has been very helpful for me ever since I was like your age. <laughs> Actually, I heard this a long time ago. Always stuck with me uh, is of a sailboat. All right? If you're on a sailboat, that boat will not move unless the wind blows. You can't make the boat, you can't make a sailboat move, right? But at the same time, when the wind blows, you have to raise a sail in order to catch the wind so that it can move forward. And in the same way, our hearts will not be changed. And if our hearts are not changed, our outward behavior won't be changed in any lasting way unless the Spirit of God does his work within us to give us new ways of thinking, new ways of desiring. It's a work of the Spirit. And yet, we have to keep our hearts, we have to raise our sails to catch that work of the Spirit. And how do we raise our sails? I think you know the answer, right? By all of those practices which anyone familiar with the Bible and anyone who wants to seriously be a follower of Jesus will know very well. By reading and hearing the word of God, by prayer, by worship and fellowship with God's people, by seeking to live simply and by serving others. These are the spiritual practices that Jesus modeled by which we raise the sail of our life to catch the wind of the spirit so that he can do that work in us. Um, Dallas Willard was a well-known Christian philosopher and pastor from my generation. He passed away a few years ago. And on one occasion, 
so a young uh, person interviewing him said, how can we en encourage Christians to grow, you know, without just telling them again and again they need to read their Bibles and pray? And Willard's response was, yeah, but see, that's the problem. Most Christians don't read their Bibles and pray. And if we won't make use of the means that God has given us for our own growth to open our lives up to the Spirit, then there really isn't much we can do for the renewal of our hearts. And then he said something very interesting. He said, I have almost never witnessed a Christian in distress and perplexity and struggling with his or her faith who was at the same time being faithful in using those regular practices by which we open our life up to the ongoing work of the Spirit in our hearts. And let me just close by saying, we read our Bibles, we pray, we worship, we serve others, not to earn God's favor. We already have God's favor through faith in Jesus. We do those things because we want to be more and more like Jesus. We want to experience the Spirit's renewing work in our hearts so that we can experience the abundant life that Jesus said he has come to give to each one of us who are his disciples. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this great reminder from the book of Proverbs that the great business of the Christian life in one sense is simply to pay very close attention to our hearts. Help us to see clearly the thinking and the desires of our hearts that we might ask your spirit to bring change where that is needed. We pray that as we read your word and as we pray and as we worship and sing praises to you and interact with other believers, you would more and more by the work of your spirit cause us to think the way Jesus would think if he were in our shoes to want and to love the things that Jesus wants and loves, Lord. We know that as our hearts become more like Christ's hearts, it's inevitable that our words and our actions will be like Christ's actions as well. We thank you and we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.